the National Archives podcast series, Naturalization and Alien Registration, presented by Roger Kershaw. I've got about 40 slides here, and I think you should have a handout of the presentation on the seats. And I've also uh, included a couple of relevant research guides which are available freely to download from our website. I'm going to talk about um, naturalisation and alien registration. Essentially, there's going to be three parts to my talk. Um, registration of aliens as they arrive in, at British ports. And this essentially started from 1793 through until 1852, and then later on until about 1870. And it was a wartime regulation that was brought in at the start of the Napoleonic Wars where aliens on arrival two British ports would actually be issued with a certificate of arrival. Secondly, I'll talk about settlement records, so records relating to aliens who had already settled within the UK where they were subject to registration. And essentially this started from 1914 uh, with the Registration of Aliens Act at the start of the First World War, so we have records relating to, to that. And during both the First and Second World Wars, resident aliens automatically overnight became enemy aliens if they were German or Austrian in the First World War, or Germans, Austrians and Italians during the Second World War. And finally I'll talk about records relating to citizenship, so when a decision is made to become British, whether that be through denization or naturalisation, and the richest sources are really for naturalisations which became much, sim much more simple since 1844 when the Home Secretary was empowered to grant naturalisations. Okay, if you're not familiar with our website, uh, we've just recently revamped it, so the research guides which, I've, which are on your, your seats are free to download from there. And I'll be talking about the catalogue throughout, and hopefully you're all aware about the catalogue and the fact that some of our records have been digitised and are available through, for example, documents online. The research guides that you might find useful related to this talk is one on the broad subject of immigration. There's also one on internees and the policy of registering enemy aliens during the First and Second World Wars. But there are other research guides uh, called Jewish History, Passenger Lists, Naturalisation, and one specifically on refugees and minorities. And if you aren't already aware, in 2006, the National Archives launched its own version of Wikipedia where anybody can contribute uh, pages uh, relating to research of history and a number of pages are being, uh, or, or contributions are being added which relate to the subject of migration. So you can just go and browse the content of migration. I think to date over 2,000 articles have been posted on there since the site was launched in 2006. And if you want to take it further, I've um, written three guides relating to uh, the source of migration. Uh, the most recent one in the middle was published only last week called Migration Records, a guide for family historians. So, looking first at arrival records, as I said earlier, it was in 1793 during the Napoleonic Wars that there was the first real attempt to register or control aliens arriving at British ports. And you'll note that throughout this talk, I'm going to be talk using the term aliens. That's because the term, which essentially means you know, non-British, it's a term that's used throughout the records and the catalogues and government departments right up until 1971. In 1971, the uh, Immigration and Nationality Office 
was born. Uh, but prior to that, it was the Aliens Office of the Home Office. So if you're interested and serious in researching records about immigrants uh, throughout the 19th and 20th century, you need to be able to search under terms such as aliens, but also searches under terms like strangers and foreigners during the medieval and early modern period. It's wise to do that. So, as I said before, there was an attempt to start to register aliens as they arrived in British ports. So when someone arrived, they would be issued with a certificate of arrival. And these, this continued throughout the 19th century. In 1826 and 1836, more importantly, masters of merchant vessels were also required to complete lists of aliens on board their vessels arriving in British ports. So there are two types of records which, which may be of interest, the certificates of arrival and the returns of alien passengers. But let's put a bit of context into this. As I said, there are a number of Aliens Acts during the 19th century which brought about these records. Specifically, the Aliens Acts of 1793 was the one responsible for certificates of arrival. And these Aliens Acts were amended right through until the Aliens Act of 1905. The Act didn't just apply to aliens who were arriving at British ports. They also um, applied to aliens who were already resident in the UK. And what, hap what needed to happen was that uh, British people who had alien lodgers would have to complete names and details related to them and take them to the local justices of the peace. So you had what were called householders' accounts of aliens resident in the UK. And they'd go to the justices of, of the peace. And these records, where they survive, can be found in local record offices among quarter session records. What we've got at the National Archives are the records relating to the entry of aliens. Strangely enough, some of the very early ones we have from 1810 to 1811 are part of Foreign Office records, the series being FO83. And it's only a couple of pieces. It's two documents, pieces 21 and 22. But the bulk of the certificates of arrival are in the series, Home Office series because the aliens department was part of the Home Office. And essentially they're in HO2 and there is name indexes to them in HO5. The lists of alien passengers on board vessels entering the UK can be found in HO3. But we'll look at some examples. This is the, uh, I think the evidence of, of the earliest records relating to aliens upon arrival at the UK ports. And this is for the port of uh, Gravesend. Even though the legislation was in force from 1793, the earliest records we seem to have are these ones dated around 1810 and 1811. And as you can see, this is, this is from the aliens' office. And essentially, the information required were the names of the aliens, where they were from, and their occupation. So here we have a native of Holland who was a surgeon in the Dutch Navy. And he entered Gravesend in September 1810, along with other aliens. But they only seemed to survive for, eight, for 1810 to 1811. And then from 1836... You have a whole series dedicated to these certificates of arrival, and they become very uniform in their appearance. The top half of this uh, document would have been handed to the alien on arrival, and he or she would have to take that to their local justice of peace or whatever. They'd have to keep that with them. Uh, and the, the bottom half here would go back to the alien's office, and over time was selected for permanent preservation and is now you know, in our, our custody. And this is quite typical of the information you'd expect to find on there. 
their date of entry, in this case, 19th of November, 1842, <coughs> their name, so this is Frederick Engels, uh, their profession, a merchant, and where they were from, and they were from Prussia. And you tend to get the signature of the bearer on the left-hand side and the signature of the port officer on the right-hand side. It tells you from which port they arrived, so this was Ostend, and he came on a vessel called the Sir Edward Banks. The remarks sometimes signify whether or not this person had been here before, and Engels is, I think, declaring that he was in the UK, but he left in 1837, and now he's returned five, year late, five years later. The records that I just showed you, we've got from 1832 through until 1852, so it's about a 30-year period. Alongside those records are these lists of aliens on board British vessels coming in to the British ports. So you will be able to find two records related to one person. So here we have the master of the vessel called Sir Edward Banks, who's travelling from Ostend through to uh, London. And within the list of names, there's the entry for Engels again, being a merchant from Prussia. So they're not particularly rich in family history detail, but theoretically, these are records relating to any alien who was entering the UK. The ship's passenger lists will include children as well as adults, but the certificates were only issued to adults over the age of 16. And there were some exemptions. For example, ambassadors didn't have to have a certificate of arrival uh, neither did their servants, and foreign merchant seamen who were serving in the British Navy also didn't have to have a certificate of arrival, so just beware that you won't find them if they fall into those categories. But regardless of who they were, if they were alien, they should be entered on these lists in HO3. Now, as I said before, these Aliens Acts were amended throughout the 19th century, but increasingly, as Britain was not at war during the mid-part of the 19th century, and Europe was by and large at peace, uh, there's substantial evidence to show that aliens were actually entering the country without being issued with a certificate arrival or without having their names entered on ships' lists. And there's a period in, in the 1840s when this parliamentary evidence uh, signified how, how severe the problem was because despite them being quite hefty charges if port officials didn't do their jobs and provide the information required, uh, it was estimated, for example, in 1842, in London, some 7,700 aliens entered the Port of London in 1842. However, only 4,500 of them were issued with certificates. So you get a period in the mid-19th century when their names don't appear, even though quite clearly they were, they were in Britain. Up until now, access to these records has been quite difficult. There's no name index to any of these lists in the series HO3. They're arranged purely chronologically by date of entry, and each volume will have different lists for different ports of arrival. The actual certificates of alien certificates in HO2 are indexed in HO5, so there is a way of, of going from the index to the certificate. And once you find a certificate, it's then relatively easy to then match it up with a list because you get to know the name of the vessel and the port of arrival. Having said that, last year or the year before, the National Archives went into a co-branded licence with Ancestry.co.uk to make these records available through our website and their website. 
And these are the records, certificates of arrival, which go from 1836 to 52, and aliens passenger lists from 1836 to 69. There are a few gaps in the years in the 1860s. It's hoped that these records will be available to search by name and download in the first half of 2009. But until then, access to them is, is, is using the original documents here at Kew. The Anglo-German Family History Society have created a number of indexes to these records and these paper indexes are available in the research inquiries room next door. Okay, moving on to settlement records. I mentioned before that uh, you need to go to local record offices and look at quarter session records for records relating to resident aliens from 1793 onwards following the, the, the Aliens Acts. We have, I guess, the first attempt to create a national register of aliens, which was in 1914. In 1914, in the outbreak of war, uh, the Aliens Registration Act required all resident <coughs> aliens to go to their police officers and register their details. And we have the su surviving records for the metropolitan area. These records were destined to be destroyed under statute, but they were a small number of them didn't actually weren't 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 destroyed, and they worked their way here about ten or fifteen years ago. And we reckon there's about one thousand cases of the tens of thousands of aliens who were living in London from 1914. But if you are interested in the policy relating to immigration, certainly in the 20th century, your best bet is to look at some of the high policy records, for example the cabinet records or prime minister's office records. Increasingly these are now being put online from 1916 uh, and you can do a lot of keyword searches just typing in immigration. The government department which had the main responsibility relating to immigration was the home office and still is today. So home office records will feature quite substantially during this talk. But also the Ministry of Labour, uh, particularly after the Second World War, the Ministry of Labour was responsible for reskilling and training a lot of the uh, immigrant workforce, particularly a lot of the Poles uh, that stayed on here after the end of the Second World War. And Metropolitan Police records, well, they, they become more important from 1914 when they were responsible for keeping registers of aliens living in the metropolitan boroughs. But let's look at some of these examples. This is a typical registration card. All the surviving records or the registration cards we've got are in the series MEPO 35. So MEPO standing for Metropolitan Police. And as I said, it was a wartime measure in 1914 that every alien needed to register their details at the police force. And we have these cards dating from 1914, some of them as late as the 1970s and 80s. Onto documents online, we've put all those cards relating to individuals who were born more than 100 years ago. So at the start of this year, we uploaded all those aliens cards for people born in 1908, for example, and next year we'll load them for those born in 1909. It doesn't mean to say you haven't got access to people who were born after that date. It's just that we haven't made the decision to put those online. But this is the kind of information you get from the cards. On the front, you get the information about the individual, so their name, where they were from, their nationality, their birth date, where they registered, occupation, and then usually a signature, and always a photograph. 
and you find out exactly when they arrive. And this is something that you may not, ac not actually know until you come to the, the registration cards. There were three reasons why somebody would come off the register. I mean, one, the obvious one being that they would die, so their card would then be cancelled. They could also move back to the country that they came from, so again, the card would be cancelled. They could move within the UK, so their card would move from the Metropolitan Police to another force within the UK. And cards for other areas of the UK can survive in local record offices or at police, police museums. But by and large, these, these records haven't survived. But there are some pockets of the UK where there is some <coughs> strong representation of them. For example, the West Midlands uh, archives uh, do have an awful lot of these cards relating to aliens resident in the West Midlands. But the main reason why people uh, came off the register was because they came, became British. And women became British upon marriage to a British subject. So this woman's card, Marie Bader, was cancelled when she married Arthur Joseph Chalk, a British subject. And she married him on the 14th of August 1920. And she would have produced her marriage certificate to the police office and that would have satisfied them that she was now British. So her, her card would be cancelled. Wasn't the same for men. If alien men married a British woman, the British woman would then take her husband's nationality. So just need to be aware of that. Every alien would also be given their own registration book. It's very unusual for us to have any of these. We, we happen to have this one as an example, but normally this would be the property of the alien. He or she would either surrender that or it would be their, their property until, until they died. And quite often these are really in the, the hands of uh, you know, people's own private possessions which have been handed down through the family. But it's just interesting to have a, an image of this on the screen so you can see how it's relatively similar to the, to the card, which is the property of the police. That's one of the more famous ones we have. That's the bookmaker, Joe Coral. You know, he came across here in the 1920s. He registered, and he's relatively young there. He was 20 years old. And these cards for him continue until the 1950s, 1955, when he eventually became a naturalised British subject. So the cards for him ceased to exist when he became British. But you can see that over 30 years he had to produce uh, new photographs to show that it, that it was he. On the back of the cards, sometimes some people usually have two or three cards. The reverse of the cards need to update the police of any information that may relate to his job, his occupation, his family. And you know, usually there's two or three cards per person. There's one person who seems to have about 20 or 30 cards. But this is one, one of the reverse cards for Joseph Coral. You see, it mentions that he married Helen Praker, uh, who was British-born in 1935. Now, upon marriage to him, she would all automatically take his nationality. So you could argue that she would then need to get a card because she was then an alien. But there's other information on the back relating to his employment and his, you know, where, where his, his business was. And, and if you didn't notify the police of this information, you would be fined. And Joe Coral was fined four shillings at the Old Street Police Station for failing to notify them of changes to his circumstances. Joe Coral uh, had a number of attempts to become British and eventually in 1955 the Home Secretary accepted his application for becoming for naturalisation. But if you look at the number of fines that he, he received uh, in the previous years that might help explain why they were a bit cautious of him become, 
coming British earlier. As I say, these records, what we have of them, have been loaded onto documents online. There's about 600 of them, and you can just type in their name and download the cards. As I say, 600 is a very small sample. In total, there's about 1,000 of them, but the remaining 400 relate to people who were born after 1909. You can still search for them, but rather than search for them on documents online, you'd need to go to our catalogue. The majority of these cards seem to relate to Jewish refugees escaping Nazi persecution during the 1930s, and that seems to be where the bulk of them are. There are some anomalies in the, in the sense that we have some of these cards in the 1970s and 80s for a few people as well. Okay, the other example of registering aliens in the UK is the policy of internment. Uh, during the First and Second World War, overnight, aliens became classed as enemy aliens, particularly if they were Austrian or German during both wars, and if they were Italians during the Second World War once Italy declared war in June 1940. Very little survives for the First World War. There's quite a lot of correspondence. This, for example, is a Metropolitan Police file relating to a camp that was set up in Upper Holloway. And it's quite a detailed account by the men who were interned there who wanted to have a group photograph. And the, the file goes into some great detail about this request is not unusual. On the Isle of Man, where most of the camps were set up, they have group photographs all the time, so you have a reference to the Isle of Man camp there. But unfortunately, very few records relate to internees and internment for the First World War. A lot of these were destroyed under statute in the 1930s and 40s and simply weren't selected to become archives. There is, in the research inquiries room, just along from this room, a document which we've created a paper surrogate, probably of several thousand people during the First World War who were assessed for internment but weren't actually interned. And it's a typescript document which, as I say, it's, it's fairly near the research inquiries desk. It's not the easiest of documents to use, and you tend to get a sentence or two on each individual uh, relating to where they lived, their age, how long they've been in the UK. And there are various categories within the document you get relating to Austrians, to Germans, to German women, to German men. But it is probably the, the most comprehensive record we have for First World War internees. You know, if you know of an internee that was interned and you think it may have been on the Isle of Man, it's quite often worth contacting the Isle of Man Heritage Museum because they have their own records relating to the local administration of internment camps. It's different for the Second World War. For the Second World War, what we have, these are known as index cards, but they're quite detailed in their own right. On the outbreak of war in September 1939, internment tribunals were set up up and down the UK. And it was estimated that there were some 70,000 resident Austrians and Germans living in the UK. And they set up about 120 of these <coughs> tribunals up and down the country. The majority of them were in the London area. And they would be chaired by upstanding people in the community, you know, perhaps a justice of the peace or perhaps, you know, someone who, who was a teacher or a doctor or whatever. And, and they would, you know, have, have a certain criteria to follow to make an assessment whether the person sitting before them was of danger and needed to be interned. And there were three categories. A 
would be that they were a significant danger and needed to be interned. Category B was that they would be exempt from internment, but they'd be subject to restrictions of special order. So perhaps they'd have to surrender their passport or they couldn't leave an area or there'd be some kind of <coughs> curfew on them. And category C was that they would be exempt from internment, so they, they'd offer no threat at all. Well, this is an example of the, he went on to be the publisher, Wiedenfeld and Nicholson. So Arthur Wiedenfeld, in 1939, sat before a tribunal, and a decision was made that this person is exempt. The main reason he was exempt, and they found this out during the interview, was that he was a Jewish refugee who had fled to the UK, escaping Nazi persecution. So he would have no sympathy or pro-Nazi views at all. And in fact because he worked in the uh, BBC as a foreign announcer, he could be used to the advantage of the, the Allied force. And that's the information you get on these cards. Occupation, how long they've been here, where they lived. This is their police registration number. So wherever this is, Evesham, Worcester, you know, the Worcester Record Office possibly may have cards for Arthur Wiedenfeld. I mean, it's, it's highly unlikely because most of them were destroyed. So, in terms of getting to this record, you can download this on Moving Here, and it's free to download the Moving Here website. It's just movinghere.org.uk. You type in Arthur Wiedenfeld, and you download that card. On this site, which celebrates uh, immigration to England over 200 years, we've digitised and downloaded all those cards where a decision was made not to intern. So you'll get a card for Arthur Wiedenfeld. However, the cards on this site do not include those where a decision was made to actually intern them. Because even after the work was completed in, in February 1940, all these tribunals had, had met and they made a decision on the 70,000 resident aliens or enemy aliens and they decided that only 570 were dangerous enough to be interned. 66,000 were exempt and 66,700 were exempt but were subject to restrictions of special order. However, this all changed in May 1940 because the threat of invasion was incre increasingly high and there was much concern about the enemy aliens who were resident in the southern strip of the UK. So overnight, you know, having been assessed as, 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 as not being particularly of any danger to society, these aliens were reassessed and put into alien camps. And we'll come on to that in, in a moment. As I said, on the back of the card, they have to explain their decision. And in Arthur Wiedenfeld's case, it was simply something like Jewish refugee escaping Nazi persecution. But it's amazing how detailed some of these decisions on the back are. I mean, this, this is relating to a woman who was technically an enemy alien, and there was a decision not to uh, intern her... <coughs> And that's, that, that's, the, that's what's backed up that decision. So you can get uh, some very detailed accounts of someone's life from these cards, which, as I said before, are described on the catalogue as indexed to alien tribunals. But, you know, in reality, they're very detailed cards. This is an example of a case where somebody was exempt from internment, but in 1940, when the invasion fears were high... He was resident in the south of England and they decided to intern him. And he's quite famous in the sense that he's one of the internee war artists and a lot of his work has actually been on, on display in, in London. He was a Jewish uh, refugee 
So there's no reason why he should be interned, but obviously at the time there were some, some great fears. And his name was Eric Wolf Friedrich Israel Khan. And he was interned in 1940 and he came out in February 1941. The pressure on the internment camps grew quite significantly in May and June 1940, partly because there was a reaction relating to the what they thought was the imminent uh, invasion, so more and more people were reassessed and interned. But also on the 12th of June, Italy declared war. So overnight, anyone who was Italian and resident in the UK was classed as an alien, and Italians were put into the alien uh, internment camps. It was so severe that the internment camps ran out of room on the Isle of Man and elsewhere in the UK. And Australia and Canada... Uh, offered their services to temporarily house these enemy aliens for the duration of the war. And, you know, ships transporting internees to Australia and Canada were, were fairly common in the summer of 1940. That came to an abrupt end in June 1940 when the Arundora Star, which was carrying 1,600 enemy aliens to Australia, was torpedoed. And they estimate that over 800 of them lost, lost their lives. And shortly after, towards the summer of, well, the autumn and winter of 1940-41, public opinion swayed and uh, an awful lot of uh, internees were actually released uh, in 1941. And relatively few were still in camps in 1942 and 43. It's interesting if you notice that reference there, K18836. Anyone who came to Britain between 1934, or after 1934, and who subsequently went on to be naturalised, they would have their own aliens file, and it would be in the Home Office, and it would be given its own unique number. The K, in this case, refers to the uh, initial of the surname of the individual, so Khan, and this is just a numerical reference. You can type in that reference to our catalogue, at any part of the catalogue, where it says go to reference, and it converts the old former reference, K18836, to a modern reference, if you don't know the number, you can just type in the name of the individual and you can search by their date of birth and their name. And these records are coming to us and have been being transferred to us by the Home Office over the past few years. So far, on site, we've only got those alien papers relating to aliens whose surnames began with A and went through to the letter N. Those ones with surnames beginning with O and going through to Z are still in the custody of the Home Office. But regardless of who holds them, you can, under the Freedom of Information Act 2000, request a review to have these records opened. And if you follow the prompts on the screen, you'll get to a page where you enter your details. And within 20 working days, an assessment will be made to see whether or not the record can be released. And it will be released to everyone once the decision's made. It may be a case where certain information is redacted. It often helps if you can provide evidence that the individual to whom it relates is dead. If, it's over, if his birth date is over 100 years old, it probably increases the chance that it will be opened. You know, it's possible that these records contain records relating to Special Branch, MI5. You know, we're talking about records in the 1930s and 40s when you know, there's lots of uh, you know, political issues and implications which were ongoing. But by and large... Reviews that go through do result in the record being, being released, so, so don't be put off by close for 100 years. 
And as I say, the easiest way to make one of these requests is through the catalogue. You just follow the prompts and add your details, and within 20 days you would get a response. This is an interesting document. It's a more general file relating to internees, and this particular file is about an inspection of camps in the Isle of Man. So the Home Office obviously employed people to inspect the camps to see whether they're being run appropriately and effectively. And there are separate camps for women and children and camps for men as well. Normally people over the age of 70 wouldn't be interned. So, and you'd get the various industries going on. I mean, that was a glove-making industry and this is a, a dressmaking class as well. Okay, finally I was going to talk to you about the naturalisation and citizenship records. As I said before, the vast majority of aliens who've settled in this country, you know, from early modern and modern times, didn't go through the formalities of becoming British and before the 1844 Naturalisation Act, it was actually very difficult and expensive to become British. You'd need to get a bill to result in a private act of parliament. So it really depended on who, who you knew and who was influential in, in, in doing this for you. It was made much easier in 1844 when the Naturalisation Act empowered the Home Secretary to grant naturalisation, and that's still the case today. We've estimated that there's about 70,000 cases of naturalisation for aliens between 1844 to 1935. So obviously that doesn't include every alien. It's difficult to know exactly as a percentage how many 70,000 represented for that 90-year period, but I think it's, it's fair to say that it's, it is by far the minority of people. And you need to ask yourself the question, why would somebody become British and... You know, the advantages of being naturalised were that you could hold public office, uh, you could own land, property, you could inherit, inherit land and property as well. So a lot would depend on what kind of job or role you had and whether or not you wanted to have a, a, a stronger role within, in British society. And, you know, conversely, I suppose you could argue how, how keen were you also to give up your, your current nationality as well. There are two types of records, the memorial records, which is very much the application for naturalisation. It will include things like referees, because you had to get British people to support your case. It would include police reports from 1872, because the police would check the evidence that you put forward. But it would also include information about your uh, places of residence. You had to list all the places you'd resided in during the previous eight years to the application. So whereas the census returns only give you a snapshot once every 10 years where someone lives, these records will list all the, all the residences that somebody had in the, pre, in the eight years prior to the application. And people did move around an awful lot in those days from, from place to place. And you have finally the certificate records. Certificates very much summarise the memorials and the, the Home Office maintained a, a set of duplicate certificates. And we'll look at some examples in a second. So law of nationality, as I explained before, before 1844, fairly complicated. You have to take out an act of naturalisation. Private acts are held in the custody of the parliamentary archives. We have some Home Office correspondence relating to the acts from 1800 in the series H01, but you can search these on the catalogue by name of the successful applicant. Letters of denization. Denization was really a halfway house. It, it allowed people to own land, but they couldn't inherit land, so the benefits weren't necessarily passed on to the children, whereas naturalizations were. 
1844, denization becomes increasingly less common because the naturalization or the process is, is, is much more simplified. Up until a few years ago, there was really only one source for finding out whether or not someone was naturalized, and that was the printed indexes to naturalization. And these are still accessible in the document reading room. They're arranged by name. So here you have a number of people with the surname Marks, Levi Marks, Michael Marks, Morris Marks, where they were from, so their nationality, the date that they applied and were granted naturalization. And then from the 1860s, they include relevance to where somebody was resident. And these two numbers here relate to the background papers and to the certificates, because they're in two different record series. And copies of these were actually also available at the Family Record Centre, and I think the Society of Genealogists also uh, purchased a copy. But a number of years ago, we took the details from these printed indexes and loaded all this information onto our catalogue. So these particular indexes, from a research perspective today, are redundant because the information is now on the catalogue. And memorial records, as I said before, uh, you know, they, they can range from about three pages in the mid-1800s to 20 or 30 pages in the 20th century because you know, they can be very detailed, particularly the police reports, which, which have to investigate the, the accuracy of the uh, <coughs> memorial that's being presented. We have very few unsuccessful applications. I'll show you one on the screen in a moment. But we do, we, we should have records of every single memorial for those naturalizations between 1844 and the mid-1930s. We estimate there's about a 97% of what was in the index that you saw before, we reckon there's about 97% actually in the archives. So for some reason, uh, 2 or 3%, we just haven't found what's in the index in the archives. With uh, the duplicate certificates, there's definitely 100% of all the certificates here. And as I say, we looked at the index with Michael Marks before. You just now stick in Michael and Marks and naturalisation. You can use a wildcard. And then if you ask the catalogue to search, it will identify all the references for people who may or may not have been called Michael Marks. The indexes sometimes include their name plus their, an anglicised version of their name because people change their names or they were known as uh, pseudonyms and aliases. So we put down as much information from the indexes onto the catalogue. And this should be enough information to then request the document either on site, there's still the original documents that are consulted, or you, know, you can go straight from here to our record copying pages to request the document to be either digitally copied or, or photocopies to be sent out. And this is an example of the page for Michael Marx. Now Michael Marx was Russian, uh, he could only apply to become British, and I think it's still the case today. You can only apply if you've had five years' residence in the country. So he applied after being here for a few years. And as I said before, during the period of eight years before the application, he needed to list all the addresses he was resident in. And he needed to get somebody specifically who was British to confirm that this person was resident at these addresses. And in this case, he chose his business partner, Thomas Spencer. So this is the case of Michael Marks and Thomas Spencer, who uh, obviously had the uh, Marks and Spencer chains, which still exist today. From 1872, you tend to get police reports. And this is a report from the mayor of Wigan's office, who had to look 
in great detail at Michael Marx's uh, application. And there's just some evidence about uh, how they've managed to check to see whether or not the person is suitable and of good character to become British. As I say, not everyone was successful when they applied for naturalisation. This is the example of another Marx, Karl Marx, whose uh, application was turned down in 1874 as a result of the report carried out by the Metropolitan Police Office. And it's quite unusual for us to have unsuccessful applications, but being that this was for Karl Marx, this was preserved for as, as a public record. Certificates, as I say, these very much kind of summarise the information that you would expect to find in the background papers. Background papers, by the way, tend to be open uh, right up to those issued in 1924. Background papers after 1924, you're likely to get the message that says closed, but you can apply under Freedom of Information Act 2005 to get those papers reviewed and subsequently they're normally released, but obviously they need to check to see whether they can be released. Certificates, on the other hand, are, are open right through from 1844 through to the latest certificate we have, which is 1987. The ones before 1870, or between 1844 and 1870, are enrolled onto Court of Chancery records in the series C54. Those issued after 1870 right through to 1987 are in the series HO334. And in terms of searching for the memorials, you can do it by name. For the certificates, you really need to know the certificate number. So increasingly, you know, from 1930s right through to 1987, you need to look at the annual indexes to naturalisation, which are printed and kept in the document reading room. Let's look at a few examples. This was Ernst Freud. Now, Ernst Freud was a Jewish family. He came with his family in 1934, escaping Nazi persecution, and he brought with him his parents, Sigmund Freud and, and Martha Freud. And when he arrived, he had three sons, uh, Stephen, Lucian and Clement Freud. Now, he arrived in 1934. He had to wait for five years until he could become British, and he applied successfully, and this particular document is dated the 30th of August 1939, so you know, two or three days before the outbreak of war, Ernst Freud his wife and children became British. Had it been two or three days later, he wouldn't have been able to apply because his status would have changed from a resident alien to an enemy resident alien, and he would have been assessed to be interned. Chances are he would have been exempt, but six or eight months later, he would have been put, in, put into a camp, most likely. So it was fairly fortunate in terms of the timing that Ernst Freud managed to get his application in when he did. And that's just another example. Philip Mountbatten realised that he needed to become British fairly quickly in order to marry uh, Princess Elizabeth. So again, it's very standard information. Name, address, occupation, nationality, current nationality at the time of application, marital status, but also information about his parents too. Finally, uh, I was going to say, don't forget the census records. Census records do include information relating to resident aliens. Uh, obviously, they're included in census returns like anybody else who was living in England and Wales. And you can access the censuses through our website. But it's quite good to search for naturalised British subjects. On the Ancestry site, you can just type in NBS or, or Restricted, and, and they will pick up 
information relating to people who claimed that they were alien but they'd naturalised. The only you know, worry about the census returns is that you know, more often than not people didn't actually tell the truth. Because when you come to actually look in the indexes of naturalisation, these people weren't naturalised. They may have felt threatened or intimidated in some way, or maybe something was lost in the translation, but NBS, you know, in this particular case, this wasn't the case. So it's always worth checking our catalogue before, before coming in and using <coughs> that as proof. This event was recorded live on the 3rd of March 2009 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright of the National Archives. All rights reserved. For more podcasts, please visit nationalarchives.gov.uk forward slash podcasts.